Welcome to the Saxophone History Podcast, a thoughtful, researched, and slightly irreverent look at the history of our instrument. I'm your host, Andrew D. Meyer. Considering that Johnny Hodges was once one of the most famous saxophone players in the world, many of us don't really know that much about him. Though Hodges received a lot of attention nationally, he was not really one to grant interviews. Like a a lot of times uh, when he was talking to a reporter, he would just simply stand up and be like, young man, I have to go. (laughs) He went by Rabbit, Jeep, and even Squatty Roo. He worked in and out of rather risque establishments early in his career and was on the road so much that he missed many important life events like his daughter's wedding. In a way, Hodges was a bit like the subject of our last episode, Joe Henderson, in that his sound and playing is instantly identifiable, yet as a man, he was somewhat elusive. Before we get into Hodges' story, I'd like to acknowledge Con Chapman's book, Rabbit's Blues, which will be the primary source for this podcast. It's a really detailed and super readable account of Hodge's life that is definitely worth a read. Chapman really did the hard work of putting together a thorough account of his life, and so I just wanted to thank him for writing it and for making sure that the correct details of Hodge's life were recorded for all of us. Con Chapman is a real historian who did the heavy lifting of sifting through the original documents and, and tracking down Hodge's associates for interviews. I hope you'll check his writing out. Also, this book, like a lot of these types of biographies, has uh, just like a load of great photos that really add character to these figures. Where to start with someone like Johnny Hodges? Even his name is something of a mystery. Aside from the aforementioned sobriquets, Hodges' given name does not appear on his death certificate, and the name by which he is commonly known, Johnny or John, does not appear on his birth certificate. His middle name is frequently listed incorrectly as Keith, And both the years of his birth and death have been printed incorrectly, and his first photographic appearance in a national magazine confused his image with that of Harry Carney, who was both childhood friend and longtime fellow Ellingtonian. Throughout his life, he was credited as a trombonist or a tenor saxophone, and an English newspaper raved about his trumpet solos. Uh, Needless to say, all of this is incorrect. Throughout his life, Hodges seemed to care very little about his own name. The AFM Local 802 New York, of which Hodges was a member, listed his surname as Hodge from 1928 until 1948, then corrected it for three years, only to return to the incorrect spelling until his death in 1970. July 25th, 1907, saw a boy named Cornelius Hodges born at home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, 1907, also born that year, uh, John Wayne, Frida Kahlo, Benny Carter, and Cab Calloway. His parents were both from Virginia and were born in the late 1860s slash early 1870s, which was just after the Civil War ended in 1865. Hodges also had three older sisters. The neighborhood of Cambridgeport, which is the the area that they lived in Cambridge, was a sought-after neighborhood for African-Americans navigating antebellum America. It was home to notable abolitionists Margaret Fuller and William Lloyd Garrison, 
as well as many other whites who were sympathetic to the advancement of African-Americans. The Howard Industrial School, which was an institution created to provide shelter and training for recently freed slaves, was founded in Cambridgeport in 1868, which is likely the same year that Hodge's father was born. Early on, the Hodges family seems to have changed their mind about the name Cornelius for their youngest child and listed his name as John C. Hodges in the 1910 census, which, uh, which occurred just three years after his birth. Weirdly, in this census, the entire Hodges family was listed as white. It's unclear whether this was like an error or whether it was an effort on the part of his mother to perhaps move the family up in the oppressive social hierarchies of the time. In the following census, you know, 10 years later, they were all listed as black. It was as a young boy that Hodges received his first nickname and the one that most of us know him by, Rabbit. Two explanations have been given for the origin of this nickname. The first, by Hodges himself, was that he was called Rabbit because he was a very fast runner and the truant officers could never catch him in the streets of Boston when they were after him for ditching school. This was the explanation that Hodges would give throughout his life. Uh, and the second reason, uh, and slightly less flattering reason given for the uh, nickname, was given by fellow saxophonist Harry Carney, who explained that Hodges was called Rabbit because he, he just kind of looked like a rabbit, <laughs> and he was always munching on these lettuce and tomato sandwiches. Carney also explained that the young Hodges was very shy and skittish, much like a rabbit, uh, and tenor man Johnny Griffin was quoted saying that Hodges looked like a rabbit. No expression on his face while he's playing all this beautiful music. Just sort of, uh, you know, if you look at a rabbit, like, like they just kind of look like they have nothing going on behind the eyes, I guess. I guess that's what he's getting at. He was known briefly as Little Caesar in New York because of his short stature and gruff demeanor uh, reminded musicians around the rhythm club of Edward G. Robinson's character in the movie Little Caesar. And just prior to his joining Duke Ellington's band, he was known in some circles as Paulie. Uh, no explanation given for that one. Aside from Rabbit, Hodge's other best-known nickname was Jeep, given to him by fellow alto player Otto Hardwick. Jeep was a reference to the cartoon Popeye's Animal Sidekick, who was sort of dog-like but also walked upright, only ever said Jeep, and was kind of oddly shaped. Jeep had a large head and nose and said very little, a fitting description of Hodges himself. This cartoon is also where the, you know, the vehicle that we know, know as the Jeep got its name in World War II, because just like Popeye's sidekick, it was small, able to move between dimensions and could solve seemingly impossible problems. Chapman points out how just like Popeye's sidekick helps him out and the four-wheel drive vehicle got soldiers out of jams in the war, Hodges kept a stream of musical brilliance flowing for his boss, Duke Ellington. He also describes a scene in a recording session where Ellington shouted out for Hodges to give a long, slow glissando over a certain passage, exclaiming, yeah, that's it, when the saxophonist executed the lick. Take a minute and look up Jeep from the Popeye cartoon. If you don't know what he looks like, Hodges, he, he did have kind of a weird resemblance to this cartoon character. One of the stranger nicknames that Hodges went by was Squatty Roo, and there isn't really a, a great explanation given for why he had this nickname, but it, it seems to be just kind of him reclaiming uh, 
you know, he was quite short and, and people would sometimes insult him. And it seems to be just like him owning that a little bit. I find these nicknames kind of fascinating, not just because they create a really rich picture of Hodges, but because of how foreign that concept seems now. Modern players are so concerned with ideas like personal branding and also just the realities of how social media and, and like how internet search works that having a bunch of different nicknames would probably seem crazy to a lot of us. Like, you know, we're so, we're, we're just like trying to get people to know who we are. And, and so to like have four or five different identities, like that, that seems kind of antithetical to that. But I suppose if, uh, if Hodges were alive today, he, he definitely wouldn't be on Instagram, right? Around 1922, when Hodges would have been a teenager, his family moved to Boston specifically the South End neighborhood, which had seen house prices decrease significantly in previous decades. Upon moving into this neighborhood, Hodges met his friend and lifelong colleague, Harry Carney. The growing poverty in South End led to an increase in the seedier aspects of nightlife, with pickpockets, pimps, prostitutes, and all of their trappings being no doubt attractive to a young, a young boy, you know, who's like bored with school. Along with his roguish nightlife came an influx of less, uh, shall we say, genteel music. Hodges was well known to skip school to get involved in who knows what. And about this time in his life, he said, I think I was all set to be a crook, a mastermind crook, until I came under the spell of music. Music was too strong. One day, a young Hodges was walking by a storefront where he saw a soprano saxophone that caught his eye because it looked so pretty. He ran home and asked his father to purchase it for him and was uh, roundly denied. Instead of going straight to his mom to ask for the instrument, which probably would have resulted in a similar result, he cooked up a little plot to blackmail her. He told her if she didn't purchase the interest for him, he'd get it, quote, the way the bad fellers do, unquote, meaning uh, he'd steal it, right? His mother relented and agreed, even though it was a rather extravagant expense for the family. According to Chapman, his mother was earning about $3.20 a day as a maid. Everyone in the Hodges house was musically inclined, with everyone playing at least a bit of piano. Hodges' mother wanted him to learn piano, so she began teaching him, though he was more interested in banging on all the pots and pans, wanting to be a drummer. Hodges claimed that he didn't learn very much piano, but he was good enough to work out tunes later in life, and during his youth, he frequently played at rent parties. In Boston, pianists were usually paid $8 for this type of gig, which would be about $100 in today's money. Interestingly, uh, Count Basie, who at the time was just known as Bill, right, uh, once relieved Hodges while he was playing a, a Boston rent party. Like Hodges is just playing at the background at this party that, that Basie comes, you know, to as, as just like a guy at a rent party. And he's like, uh, hey, kid, uh, you know, take a break and uh, let me let me play a bit. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> Hodges seems to have been a natural on the saxophone. Uh, we know that he had little formal instruction and and he claimed throughout his life to have had like none at all. He said, quote, I didn't have any tuition and I didn't buy any books. A friend, Abe Strong, came by and, and showed me the scale just after I bought the horn. And I took it up from there by myself for my own enjoyment and had a lot of fun. 
So far as reading went, I took a lesson here and there, and then experience taught me a lot, sitting next to guys like Otto Hardwick and Barney Begard, unquote. Two thoughts come to mind from hearing that quote. First, I wonder how much of it is true. I suppose there's really no way to know what, what kind of additional formal instruction Hodges would have had. I think it's always a temptation for players to make it seem like things just came naturally to them, but in this case, we, we just don't really have any evidence to the contrary, so why not just take him at his word, right? This type of training reminds me a bit of the way that uh, like young gypsy jazz guitar players come up. Uh, they typically receive little in terms of formal musical, musical education, but uh, they absorb so much from older relatives and friends and, and players in their community. Because they internalize everything, they seem to become just like really expressive and deeply musical players. There seems to perhaps be like a similarity with Hodges here. Um, you know, his early days, he was just kind of absorbing music from from people in the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, the styles are obviously quite different, but I, I think it's kind of similar how he how he grew up learning music. And secondly, I love the, the part of the quote where he says, like, kind of offhand, I took it up from there by myself for my own enjoyment and had a lot of fun. <laughs> he certainly played like he was having a lot of fun throughout his career. There's, there's just like so much joy and emotion in his playing. And uh, it's nice to see this rooted in his childhood attempts at playing the horn. There are rumors of Hodges being an impatient student or one who quickly outpaced his teachers. There's a legend that after a couple of months studying with a Boston area player called Bob Joyner, uh, the teacher told Hodges that he was finished teaching him and, and now the student would become the teacher. I find these, these types of stories to be, you know, like a bit of a stretch, but I suppose it's not impossible. After all, the saxophone and its pedagogy was certainly not fully developed at this time. One result of this lack of, of much training was that throughout his career, Hodges was not known to be a great sight reader. He often relied on his ear and bandmates to learn new material. There are certainly many jazz players throughout the years who followed this type of trend, but it does seem a bit unusual to me that someone so well known for playing in Duke Ellington's orchestra wouldn't be a strong reader. I think we just naturally assume that all those guys in, in those kind of big band settings, you know, uh, what's the saying that they say in North Texas, like can read fly shit on paper. You know, I, I think we sort of expect it to be that kind of thing. The neighborhood that Hodges grew up in, in South End, Boston became known as saxophonist ghetto because there were so many saxophonists coming from there. In addition to Hodges was the young Harry Carney, who along with Hodges took some lessons with Jerome Jerome Don Pascal, a future graduate of the New England Conservatory of Music and lead alto with Fletcher Henderson. Other aspiring saxophonists included Charlie Holmes and Howard and Bobby Johnson, uh, who were brothers. This density of talented players and the ability to connect regularly with other uh, more experienced and, and those still learning their craft was no doubt inspirational and massively helpful to the young Johnny Hodges. Whilst Hodges may have learned the basic mechanics of saxophone playing from fellow neighborhood players, his first idol in terms of musical style was Sidney Bechet. Bechet played in Boston somewhat regularly with a rather racist outfit put together by burlesque promoter Jimmy Cooper. 
The show was called The Black and White Review, and it promised complete separation of performers and complete satisfaction to the audience. The first act was performed by all whites, and the second act featured, quote, 20 Negroes, of which Boucher, as a mixed-race Creole of color, was one. Hodges went to see this show regularly for two years. When I first read this, I was kind of amazed that Hodges would go see the same show so often. Was he so taken with Boucher's playing that he had to go as often as possible? Of course, we have to remember that there weren't really a lot of recordings available at this time, so going to live concerts was really the only way for many people to hear music. There were no recordings of Boucher until 1923 when he recorded with Clarence Williams' Blue Five playing Wildcat Blues on Kansas City Man Blues. <laughs> his sister, 10 years his senior, knew Boucher, uh, and after Hodges eventually wore her down, she introduced the budding soprano player to probably the most famous sop uh, soprano player in the world. Hodges took his horn, uh, which was a curved soprano, by the way, uh, he took his horn with him to meet Boucher, which is quite a bold move. Boucher asked him if he could play it, to which uh, the rather precocious Hodges answered yes and played My Honey's Lovin' Arms. In response, he received a That's Nice from Boucher. Sidney Boucher was to have an outsized influence on the young Hodges, and their associations were not limited to this single backstage meeting. Upon a second meeting in similar circumstances, Hodges began to study with Boucher, and eventually uh, he came to work alongside him. Hodges worked as a warm-up act at Club Boucher in New York City for a time, and also performed duets with Boucher during this time. Later on, the two appeared on the same bill at the Rhythm Club in 1924 and at Club Basha in 1925. It seems natural enough that Hodges would gravitate to Boucher as he was really the only significant soprano player on the scene at the time. I think that this early exposure to Boucher's lyrical style and rather extreme vibrato made a major impact on Hodges' playing style throughout his career. In a way, you could see Hodges as a, a sort of a transitionary figure between very early styles of jazz saxophone playing and the more modern forms to come. He started out very much in the Boucher model of fast and wide vibrato, but ultimately came to streamline his sound into a more cool and modern approach to vibrato. Though he was known for his big glissandi and use of portamento, Hodges was more reserved in his playing than Boucher, not making use of Boucher's frequent growls and other idiosyncratic sounds. Interestingly, Ellington hired Boucher in 1924 uh, for a tour of New, New England, finding that Boucher's soprano solos propelled the band to new heights. It seems natural that Hodges would join the band later, still heavily influenced by Boucher's playing, and take the band forward for decades with his own solos evolving into a more modern idiom over time. Ellington's band has been described as a New Orleans band in disguise, thanks to Ellington's hiring of New Orleans musicians like Boucher, bassist Wellman Broad, and guitarist Lonnie Johnson. Also, many of the brass players in the band were notably disciples of Louis Armstrong. It's somewhat ironic that Johnny Hodges, a New England-born musician, would be such a natural fit with Duke Ellington, also a Northeastern musician, through this uh, New Orleans idiom that both were so taken with. In his book, Rabbit's Blues, Con Chapman cites many examples of rivalries, feuds, and outright nastiness between New York musicians and New Orleans musicians, largely over which style of playing was correct or more authentic. 
the duality is usually expressed as New Orleans players being unschooled and focused on tone and feeling owing to their training playing outdoors at parades, funerals, and other social events, while New York musicians were excellent readers and highly educated, a result of their training coming from lessons and study. This Apollonian-Dionysian divide uh, seems to have does seem to have really existed. And it uh, resulted in events like cutting contests between Sidney Bechet and Coleman Hawkins and, and, and Duke Ellington declaring that high school teachers played better jazz than Jelly Roll Morton. Uh, what's interesting to me about all this is that Hodges kind of walks, he, he walks right through the middle of this divide, not really fitting into either camp. He's a Boston slash New York musician who is well known, you know, not to be a good reader. And he began his career very much in the New Orleans model of playing, yet went on to play ultra fine, ultra refined arrangements with Duke Ellington, streamlining his sound and style for the future. I suppose that this points out that while there will probably always be tribalism in jazz, stylistic differences uh, come from personal choice and taste rather than geographic location. Incidentally, if this is a topic of interest for you, uh, during my master's, I did a rather lengthy paper on misconceptions in cool jazz that looks at a lot of these same issues. Uh, it's available on my website if you're interested in taking a sort of critical look at the development of cool and West Coast jazz. Many saxophonists of the next generation have pointed to Hodges playing as significant for them, but I particularly believe it when it comes to Cannonball Adderley, who cited Hodges as a major influence. I think you can hear a lot of Hodges' big sound and lyrical approach in his playing. In this way, I think that Johnny Hodges was a major figure in bridging the early approaches to jazz saxophone playing to the more modern approaches that would develop in the coming decades. Hodges certainly had a lyrical and singing sound that was almost vocal in its delivery. Many singers through the years, such as Bing Crosby and Tony Bennett, have heaped praises on the voice-like qualities of Hodges' playing. Stanley Dance theorized that this singing style uh, in Ellington's uh, lead alto player and frequent soloist is what allowed the group to work without a vocalist frequently, which was unusual for the time. Dance also noted, uh, in reference to a string of recordings with vocalists such as Ella Fitzgerald, Rosemary Clooney, and Joya Sherrill, that hiring Hodges to work behind a vocalist could be risky because there was always a danger that the saxophonist would uh, out-sing the vocalist on his horn. He goes on to say that Hodges never did this intentionally, but that his sound was so big and vocal that it was easy for him to dominate vocalists. Back to Hodges' teenage years. Harry Carney remembered that Hodges had a large record collection and the two of them would play along with the records as best they could and take licks and phrases they liked. The two especially favored records uh, featuring Bechet, Louis Armstrong, and Frank Trumbauer, who was playing the C melody saxophone. Uh, Carney also remembers telling his friend to switch to a straight soprano, thinking that Hodges looked sharp walking along the street with an alto in one hand and a straight soprano case in the other. Hodges had also come to the realization that the alto was more or less the lead voice when it came to saxophones, likening it to the violin, and so he had begun playing the alto as well. By the time Hodges was 14, he was playing all over Boston, but because he was so young, he was restricted to things like afternoon tea parties, where alcohol was usually not served. 
He was also playing many rent parties and working his way into the night music scene where he could, largely by lying about his age, um, you know, get away with it. It's said that he earned $11 for his first gig, which he gave to his mother as repayment for her trusting in him. Hodges likely first encountered Duke Ellington at a club called the Black and White Club, which was unrelated to the show featuring Sidney Bechet of the same name mentioned earlier. Hodges played here with a trio backing him, as well as with a band led by Walter Johnson. Other band leaders such as Ted Lewis and Phil Harris were also equally impressed with Hodges playing in this club. It seems that the Black and White Club was frequented by musicians and band leaders when they would visit Boston from New York and other places. Duke Ellington, who frequently toured New England in the summers, would have likely seen Hodges here. Hodges claimed that Duke tried to get him to join his band during this time, uh, but he, he wouldn't. Uh, this period of time seems to be a bit murky. It seems very likely that Ellington would have encountered a young Hodges and, and you know, he, he likely would have been impressed by his playing. What doesn't make sense to me is is why Hodges wouldn't have jumped at the chance to to join this band. You know, like here's a guy, a young player who's who's, you know, showing some promise. He's obviously got real talent, and and an established band leader like Duke Ellington comes along and wants him wants to recruit him into his band. Like, why doesn't he just jump at that chance? I don't know. Like maybe he was he was too young, or or maybe his parents intervened, or or any number of other reasons. I guess. One interesting side note, uh, since we're speaking about musicians moving to New York from Boston, uh, is exactly you know why New York provided so much more opportunity for African-American musicians than Boston. In addition to having just way more playing opportunities and a significantly larger black population, the New York Musicians Union was never segregated, thus allowing for more and better opportunities for black musicians. In Boston, clubs were segregated, and the union was as well, uh, predicated on the racist view that, that black players couldn't read as well as white players. Uh, this is obviously nonsense, but had the effect of keeping black players out of the better theater and cabaret gigs in Boston. So I mentioned earlier that Sidney Bechet had been a member of Duke Ellington's orchestra. This didn't last long, uh, the final straw being that Bechet turned up three days late for a gig, saying that his cab driver got lost. Ellington just couldn't deal with having a featured soloist who was so unreliable and, you know, frankly, like, who could? So Bechet was out. But Ellington needed someone to fill this role of New Orleans-influenced soloist. Enter Johnny Hodges. Actually, Duke hired uh, two musicians to fill uh, Bechet's shoes, Johnny Hodges on alto and Barney Bagard on clarinet. I just love the idea of Bechet showing up three days late for a gig. Like, you know, you can be 15 minutes late, you can be an hour late. Like, if you're over a day late, like, like you're not late, man. Like, you just weren't there, you know? Like, and, and the excuses, my cab driver got lost, like... Uh, it's so good. I love it. Anyway, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. It's not known exactly when Hodges first arrived in New York. Unlike our episode on Joe Henderson, where, where Joe just kind of like showed up and, and took the scene by storm, Hodges began by going down to New York on the weekends and, and staying a night or two at a time. This started happening, happening during his mid-teen years from about 15 to 17 years old. 
One thing is for sure, he was very taken by the larger jazz scene and voracious nightlife the city had to author, offer. He was quoted as saying, quote, All night long, you'd go from one place to another. Nothing was expensive. You had a good time for just a little money. Everybody was happy. And no taxes, unquote. I think that's funny that he just throws in that thing about, hey, no taxes. Sweet. Like, what 16-year-old kid is like, you know what's too high? Taxes. Apparently Johnny Hodges. Hodges said himself that it was very easy to get a job at first in New York. He claimed he would, uh, he would work in a dancing school and then go to a jam session afterward. That was the formula. Dancing schools were something of a euphemism. Apparently, these types of clubs, which were essentially whorehouses, couldn't get a license to operate unless they taught dancing. Fortunately for the club, there didn't happen to be any laws preventing a dancer from taking a client out for a bit of romance after the lesson was paid for. Guitarist uh, Lawrence Lucy recalled that the pay was union scale, uh, or about $28 a week. I love this mashup of the legal and illegal. The musicians are getting union scale working in, in what sounds like pretty seedy and uh, quasi-legal brothels. I guess maybe that shows how effective the union was at the time. As for the jam sessions that Hodges and other New York musicians would attend after their evening engagements, these were set up where the owner of a club such as Small's Paradise, Mexico's, the Capitol Palace, and the Rhythm Club would hire the best band he could afford, and then a parade of horn players would come in for cutting contests. These cutting contests seemed to have had two significant roles. First, they pushed the music forward, uh, making harmonic invention and technical prowess inextricably linked with the New York jazz players to this day. When you think of the stereotypes of, of the New York jazz scene, like, you know, playing giant steps in seven and in G flat at 400 beats per minute, this is this is like where that thing starts. You know, these all night cutting contests where where players are just trying to outshine each other. And secondly, these jam sessions functioned as a kind of hiring pool for band leaders such as Ellington, Fletcher Henderson, Elmer Snowden and Charlie Johnson. If you think about it, it's kind of like a free audition service for these band leaders. You just come in, have some drinks, and sit back while all these young lions strut their best stuff, and you just, you know, pick out the ones who will fit your outfit best and, and what your band's doing, and then, you know, make them an offer at the end of the night. Hodge's first job after mastering the dance school circuit was at a cabaret on 135th Street called Fritz's. He was paid $25 a week and earned about five times that each in, in just in tips each week. If you adjust for inflation, Hodges was making about $2,000 a week, which is kind of a staggering amount of money uh, for the young Hodges just, you know, out on his first job. I mean, that's a lot of money to be making $2,000 a week playing now. Harry Carney described him as coming home uh, to Boston at, after this uh, as like a big timer with with what he called a Mexican bankroll, uh, you know, which is a, a, a roll of singles with a big bill on the outside. During this time, Hodges was shuffling back and forth between Boston and New York. He claims to have not been very interested in money, which seems pretty obvious since he surely would have stayed in New York if he had been more financially motivated. I mean, he's like making a ton of money there and, and that's where all the gigs are. 
Hodges claimed he would he would go to New York for a week or so and join a band to earn some money and get some uh, get some new ideas from the other musicians and then head back to Boston. It's pretty remarkable just how different the scene was back then. You know that 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 was a thing like you could just just go to Boston or sorry go to New York like just hook up with a band like play with them for a week get some money and then like yeah all right I'm I'm going back to Boston to hang out with my friends and and relax a bit. During this time, Hodges was playing alto and clarinet. This changed when he was approached by Sidney Bechet to play at his new club called Club Basha. Basha is apparently an attempt at a phonetic spelling of how Bechet wanted his name pronounced. Uh, he wanted it said like Bechet, Bechet, I guess. I don't know. Bechet gave Hodges a straight soprano and the two would play duets in his show. Hodges also learned all of the intros and all of Bechet's parts as well, so that when Bechet would, uh, you know, just go missing in action or show up late, as he frequently did, Hodges could simply cover for him. It seems this was a, a deliberate plan by Bechet to get Hodges trained up to cover for him so that he could go off drinking or with a woman whenever he pleased and, and still have his show go on. Which was, you know, pretty smart move. Interestingly, as close as Boucher and Hodges seem to have been, and even though in many ways Hodges carried on Boucher's legacy and playing style, Boucher didn't mention him even once in his autobiography, Treat It Gentle. This final stint with Boucher didn't last long, as Boucher abruptly abandoned his club and moved to Europe. It was a good thing that Boucher had been using Hodges as his understudy, however, as the younger saxophonist was able to take over his duties full-time. He did this for a little while before leaving to join Chick Webb's band, which would be his last full-time gig before joining Ellington. When he left Club Basha, a young Benny Carter took over his duties. Chick Webb's band was put together by Duke Ellington, who was acting as a, a sort of an informal booking agent in New York. When a club wanted a band, they would often come to Ellington, who was quite established, although early in his career. Ellington got together a group of musicians for the Paddock Club and approached Hodges to be the band leader, but Hodges had no interest in taking on the extra responsibilities of, of being the leader. So eventually he convinced Webb, who also didn't want the extra hassle uh, to be a band leader, but he, he told him that all he had to do was pick up the money and bring Ellington his cut every week. That's basically how the Chip, Chick Webb Orchestra was started. I, it's really funny how like nobody wanted to be the band leader. They're all like, no, nah, we just want to play like we don't want to handle the money and like, you know, deal with all the hassle. So the group had a pretty good run at the paddock until a fire, which was believed to be an arson for insurance job, cut their engagement short. Apparently, this was a pretty common practice for club owners, and, and they would even like tell their musicians to take their instruments home on the night that they were going to like, you know, have the supposed accident. Uh, in the end, the fire was something of a blessing for the group as they shortly moved uptown for a six-month stint at the Savoy Ballroom. Hodges came to join Ellington's band as a result of two members departing the group. Clarinetist and tenor player Rudy Jackson was dismissed by Ellington for being unreliable and also over his lifting of a rift from King Oliver's uh, Camp Meeting Blues, which he inserted into Ellington's Creole Love Call, prompting an unsuccessful lawsuit from Oliver. Altoist Otto Hardwick, also known to be an unreliable heavy drinker who earned the nickname Professor Booze, uh, which was pronounced by other band members as Booze, Professor Booze, 
Uh, he had to step back from his duties after severely cutting his face by going through the window of a taxi in an accident. This was the third time that Ellington had, had tried to recruit Hodges into his band. Both times before, Hodges had told him that he wasn't ready, uh, which looking back from our modern perspective seems a little crazy, but we have to remember that Hodges was making good money, loving the scene in New York, and, and, and also really wasn't a strong reader. I can imagine him like getting the call from Duke and thinking, why should I take a chance on this thing when my current situation is going so well? Like I'm making all this money. Uh, you know, why, why should I go stick my neck out on this like reading gig when, when I, you know, everything's working out here and I'm making good money. Like why take a chance? Uh, at, at this point he had already, uh, he had sub for auto Hardwick, uh, when Hardwick had to go for a funeral in DC. So like he did know, you know, like what the Ellington band was about and he, he had sat in with them before. Hodges was certainly still developing his abilities around the time that he was joining Ellington's band. He was known to be able to play in all keys without necessarily knowing what key he was playing in. Uh, stories abound of, of Harlem cutting contests between Benny Carter, Jimmy Dorsey, and Johnny Hodges, with uh, the slightly more schooled players like Carter and Dorsey winning at first due to their advanced harmonic knowledge. But as uh, Hodges combined these, these technical facets with his dominating sound, he, he really became a, a force to be reckoned with. In 1928, Johnny Hodges was not quite 21 years old when he joined Duke Ellington. He gave up his sporadic but high-paying gigging work in New York for a slightly lower but regular paycheck and joined the local 802 for the first time. He was also married to his first wife, who had already given birth to their first child. Johnny Hodges officially joined Duke Ellington on May 18, 1928. Interestingly, uh, the 18th of May was also the birthday of his sister, Josephine, and of his son, John. His first performance with the band was at the Cotton Club, and within little more than a month, he had completed his first of many road trips and recording sessions with Ellington. Apparently, the young Hodges made a nervous start with the Ellington Band. He was required to read Duke's complex arrangements, uh, which was quite different from the head tunes to which he was accustomed. Also, replacing Otto Hardwick was no mean feat. Hardwick was known to be a consummate professional uh, with a strong command of the horn. Hodges' sound immediately became an integral part of Ellington's group, providing contrast to the other section leads. On trumpet, James Bubber Miley was using a, a plunger mute to create a world of growls and animalistic sounds, a major attraction driving hordes of white customers up to Harlem to see the all-black performers at the Cotton Club. Conversely, on trombone, Juan Tizol was known to play with a clean sound, eschewing glissandi and so many of the effects natural to the trombone. Hodge's passionate howls on the saxophone added dark, tropical, and warm elements to the sound, according to German critic Joachim Berendt. Uh, the Ellington band really leaned into the, the sort of jungle music stereotype of black performers that titillated white audiences of the day, and Hodges was no doubt a natural fit in this role. In early 1929, the profile of the Ellington Band, and likewise that of Johnny Hodges, increased significantly with the broadcast of live radio performances on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. The band was broadcast live from the Cotton Club from 6 to 7 p.m., 
leading drummer Sonny Greer to joke that everyone across the nation would work all day and then starve until the Ellington band had finished playing. This is obviously an overstatement, but it is important to notice you know, that uh, performances were not taped or, or rerun or repeated in these days. So if you wanted to hear something, you heard it when it was happening or you missed it. This boost in national notoriety led to more demand for the Ellington Band to travel, something that was both more financially rewarding and no doubt more satisfying on a humanistic level. The Cotton Club, which was decorated to look like something of a southern plantation, largely catered to white audiences, curious to take in the black entertainment of the day. This dynamic would have no doubt rubbed Ellington and his musicians the wrong way night after night. Unfortunately, the contract that the Ellington Band had with the owners of the Cotton Club, uh, who were possibly involved with organized crime, gave the club the option to hire the band in whenever the owners wanted. Uh, so this, this arrangement prevailed until Cab Calloway and his group filled in for Ellington whilst the band were away filming Check and Double Check in Hollywood. Calloway was such a success that he basically took the role from Ellington, allowing the band to go out on the road permanently. You can, you can kind of imagine this situation, right? Like uh, the Ellington band is, is getting bigger and bigger because they're doing these, these radio broadcasts. So people from all over the nation are hearing them and they're like, you know, we want you to come play in our club. We want you to play for this theater, uh, whatever. And, and the Cotton Club's like, no, like we got you in this contractual thing. So like, we're going to keep you here. And, and Ellington and his guys are probably like, you know, we want to, like, we got to get out of Cotton Club. It's like, it's this kind of like weird race thing where it's like, uh, you know, it's like a fig plantation kind of house. And like, it's all these white people like coming to kind of like ogle, ogle us and, and they can't get out of the, the contract thing. And until they, you know, get this chance where Cab Calloway comes in and, and I bet, you know, when, when they got the opportunity for Cab to take over that gig, I'm sure Ellington and the guys were like, all right, man, cool. Like, good luck with it. We're going out on the road. See you later. <laughs> so aside from his work with Ellington, Hodges recorded with Bechet uh, in the 30s and took part in a concert with Benny Goodman at, Car at Carnegie Hall, which was billed as the first concert of swing music in the history of Carnegie Hall. This concert was a significant milestone because it was the first time that America's homegrown musical art form was presented in a venue known for presenting the, you know, the peak of European classical music. At the time, it was generally considered improper for black and white musicians to appear together on stage, though recorded performances of mixed groups were becoming more common. Even more importantly, this concert of America's indigenous music performed by a mixed-race ensemble was given in front of a completely desegregated audience, with black-and-white concertgoers sitting shoulder-to-shoulder. Shoulder. This is a bit of a digression, but I think it's worth exploring. In the 20th century music history courses that I took over the course of my degrees, much hay is made over American composers searching for a, a distinctly American idiom rather than continuing to emulate the European styles that dominated at the beginning of the 20th century. This takes many forms and, and composers running the spectrum from George Gershwin to William Grant Still acknowledged aspects of African-American musical traditions in a variety of ways. Dvorak famously said that the future American school will be based upon the, the music of the Negro. Uh, that was a quote from him, which regarding American popular music, I think it's fair to say is pretty much right on the money. 
So, so this concert of swing music by Benny Goodman, also involving Johnny Hodges, Harry Carey, sorry, Harry Carney, and Cootie Williams at Carnegie Hall marks one of the earliest acknowledgments of acceptance by the establishment of the importance of this African-American idiom in America's indigenous music. I just think it's kind of neat to note that, that Johnny Hodges was at the center of this development as a performer. Incidentally, about Hodges and the concert, Benny Goodman said, quote, I know that our 1938 concert at Carnegie Hall would have lost a lot if we didn't have the cooperation of fellows like Johnny Hodges, who is the greatest man on alto sax I ever heard, unquote. Throughout this time in the 1930s, Hodges was married to a former hostess from the Savoy Ballroom called Bertha B. Pettiford. She, along with some seven or eight uh, other wives of band members, would frequently travel with the band. It's a real testament to how different the times were for musicians and, and just how good of a job it was that these guys could afford to bring their wives out on the road with them. Unfortunately, this marriage didn't last, and by the end of the decade, Hodges was seen around with a dancer from the Cotton Club named Edith Louise Fitzgerald Q, uh, but she just went by Q. Hodges and Q were married in Chicago in 1944 and remarried in 1968 in order to be recognized by the Catholic Church. The couple produced a son and Hodges' second daughter. Uh, Hodges' second daughter named Lorna followed in her mother's footsteps, becoming a dancer with her own ensemble, the Mafada Dance Company. When Hodges died, Lorna held the copyrights to 112 of her father's compositions. Hodges' son, John, became a drummer who performed live and recorded with his father on many occasions. He barely outlived his parents and died at age 36. By all accounts, Hodges' second marriage was a happy one. Q traveled with Hodges and the Ellington Band and was a strong supporter of her husband. In 1969, Ellington was forced to hire Norris Turney as something of an understudy for Hodges, who had missed several performances due to ill health. Allegedly, late one night, there was a knock on Turney's uh, hotel room door, which his wife answered. And when she opened the door, she found a heavily inebriated Q who told her simply, You ain't nothing. You can't play like Johnny Hodges. <laughs> Though married life was more or less uncomplicated and joyful for Hodges, he rarely visited his children due to his, uh, his perpetual touring. His daughter Lorna remembered him as kind and a good listener who missed nearly all birthdays, events, and even her wedding. Since Q traveled with the band frequently, Hodges' children were largely raised by their grandmother, Hodges' mother, in New York. Uh, Hodges was not particularly close with his daughter. Even when she later attended Juilliard to study music, the two found it difficult to connect over their share, shared passion. Lorna describes how she was learning a lot of theory at Juilliard and would come home to ask her father questions about it, to which he would uh, reply that he didn't really know anything about theory and, and just played by feel. She did point out that after these uh, sort of failed attempts at communication, he would arrange for other musicians he knew to call her and discuss music theory with her, which I think shows a real desire to, to connect and, and to care for her development. I also just love the idea of his daughter like walking into class and announcing to the TA, you know, I guess they probably didn't have TAs teaching theory at Juilliard in those days. But I love the idea that, uh, you know, she comes in and, and says that 
Juan Tizol told her such and such about periodic structure or that, you know, well, Duke Ellington explained secondary dominance to me on the phone last night. <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. You know, would probably be pretty intimidating to a teacher. Prior to his marriages, Hodges had his first daughter as a teenager with a woman named Frances Vivian Jones. Hodges and Jones never married, and she didn't travel with the band like his later wives would, uh, though she did bring her daughter to shows to see her father whenever they were in town, and claimed that everyone in the band knew, knew who Hodges' daughter was. It's kind of a sad story in a way, but I guess for all of us it's a good thing that he didn't, like, uh, you know, take up a job selling insurance or something to stay home and support his first family as a teenage father. Another story involving a, a, a possible paternity issue is a little more humorous. On a European tour, the band had had a stint in Sweden, and when they returned the following year, pianist arranger Jimmy Jones recalled a group of women awaiting the arrival of their plane with babies in arms, one of which was allegedly Hodges. This woman, whom Hodges had known on the previous tour, showed up at one of their concerts in Stockholm and appeared in the wings of the stage. Drummer Sam Woodyard uh, recognized her on, on one side of the stage, like in the wings, and in cue, Hodges' wife on the opposite side. Woodyard managed to get Hodges to, to ferry his drums about so that he appeared busy and wasn't able to leave the stage at any point, uh, avoiding a confrontation and, and possibly the acknowledgement of another child. I, I just love the idea of everywhere the band goes, like a bunch of women showing up at the airport with babies and, and like shouting at these guys in all different languages. Like, you know, hey, you bums, like, uh, you know, <laughs> remember me? While Hodges was busy touring and recording with Duke Ellington, he also had his own projects going on, albeit under different names. Enter Jay Harges and Q Porter. Ellington was well known to have allowed the players in his band to record with other acts in order to earn more money, and Hodges was, uh, you know, like the most in demand amongst them. There were, however, times when, contractually speaking, Hodges was not technically allowed to moonlight with other groups. During the 30s and 40s, Hodges recorded with Earl Hines, Lionel Hampton, Billy Strayhorn, Teddy Wilson, and a very young Billy Holiday. Not all of these recording projects were done for money or for musical exploration. In 1944, a group of Ellington bandmates, uh, Hodges, Ben Webster, Juan Tizol, and Ray Nance, felt that they were being overlooked with Ellington, and, uh, and so they approached Woody Herman with their complaint, hoping to do some recording. Herman was unsympathetic to their cause, perhaps because he was a band leader himself and, and just knew all too well the difficulties of managing the personalities of, of some of the top musicians in the nation. Nonetheless, Herman discussed the matter with Ellington, uh, who was generally obliging to these types of requests, and uh, gave his blessing, and, and, the record, and the quartet recorded four tunes with Herman, including Tizol's Perdido. The mid-1930s saw another recording opportunity for the Ellington musicians in the form of uh, the band-within-a-band format, although not for Hodges at first. Uh, this, is, this is kind of like a, a unique uh, situation with the Ellington band, and, and, and I, guess, I guess what I learned about the Ellington operation reading about this is, uh, you know, the Ellington was more than just a big band. It, it was almost like a like the Ellington Corporation or the Ellington Machine. Uh, and it, that'll become clear in a minute here. So 
When, when Prohibition ended just before Christmas of 1933, roadhouses and, and other cheap drinking establishments sprung up across the nation. Owners of these venues needed records for their jukeboxes, but, but a lot of these found, uh, found the Ellington records to be too pricey at uh, you know, 75 cents each. A few years earlier, Ellington had come into contact with a former high society debutante turned wannabe jazz singer in Detroit named Helen Oakley. To make a long story short, after giving up her attempts at a singing career, Oakley turned her hand to record producing and promotion. She encouraged a reluctant Ellington to record with smaller groups made up from his regular band. Uh, Ellington was resistant to this at first because he feared diminishing his reputation as a a composer and, and... and diminishing the stature that, that commanding, you know, such an orchestra afforded him. While Oakley was a driving force behind Ellington beginning this new and hugely successful recording format, she was also largely behind Hodge's exclusion from the venture at first. Oakley recognized that Hodge's fame was reaching new levels and feared that if featured in this capacity, he might be persuaded to leave the band to strike out on his own. Now, obviously, you can't tell musicians something like this, so she covered her reasoning by saying that Hodges was the top-paid uh, top paid musician in the band, sometimes earning more than Ellington if it was a particularly heavy recording week, and so that other members of the band should be given the opportunity to increase their earnings by recording more frequently. I guess maybe I need to explain this more uh, so they start making these these small group records. So like the Ellington Corporation, if you will, is like is the big band, right? It's the Ellington Orchestra. And then they make these smaller groups. They take, you know, like a couple of saxophones and a trumpet and a trombone or whatever. And they make these other records like on the cheap that they're that they're selling to these uh, kind of like roadhouse uh, saloon things to put in their jukeboxes. And, and as they start making these records, they don't want to use Hodges uh, or Oakley doesn't want to use Hodges right away because they fear like if he if he gets some success with these small group recordings, he might uh, he might just be like, you know, what? I'll, I'll just strike out on my own. Like, I don't need to be a part of the Ellington band. Like, look at all these records I'm selling. Why don't I just go and do my own thing? So they start making these records and, and, and they're largely using the other players. But. Eventually, Hodges was given his chance to lead one of these small group uh, budget recordings, which which were made for uh, for the label Variety. His first session produced a rather disappointing collection of pop tunes that were they're not really great tunes for him to to record. They were pretty unflattering. His second of these sessions produced a massive jukebox hit with Hodges playing soprano on the tune Jeep's Blues. Oakley describes uh, being able to walk 40 blocks through Harlem and hearing the recording on every corner jukebox along the way. This was Hodge's first major success under his own name. These small group recordings created a duality in the Ellington universe that went far beyond the size of the group. Trumpeter Cootie Williams explained that the majority of the full band performances the Ellington band gave were for largely white, upper-class audiences. When they were playing dances, the band featured like many waltzes and the types of dances that society types knew. On the small group recordings, the players worked through blues and hot jazz, music more closely associated with African-American audiences. This worked out quite neatly since these small group records were also designed to be less expensive, uh, perfect for working class America. 
You could say that during this time, the full orchestra was reserved for high society events and the small group recordings were available to working class and less affluent people. It's not exactly the same thing, but in a way, this kind of reminds me of the thing that Shostakovich was doing in the Soviet Union, where his his like you know major orchestral works were sort of flag-waving, Bolshevik-approved works for the party, and his chamber music was filled with this much darker, defiant, almost cryptic content. It's not exactly the same thing, but I, I think it's interesting that both men were creating work with these two sides at, at roughly the same time on different sides of the world particularly since both were using themes native, you know, to their to their lands and peoples in elevated compositional settings. You know, Shostakovich is using uh, Russian and, and Jewish themes and Ellington uh, is using blues and jazz themes and, in these, you know, kind of elevated compositional settings. I often think that Johnny Hodges and his sound in particular worked as a kind of pivot point in the Ellington Orchestra that allowed the band to find success in, in both of these idioms. His lyrical pure tone worked with both the modern symphonic works that Ellington was striving for and, and which came more out of the high society performances with the large ensemble, as well as on the heavier blues numbers that kept the band firmly within the African-American tradition largely represented by the small group recordings. Another side note, uh, right around the time that these small group sessions got going, which is in the late 1930s, uh, was the time that Billy Strayhorn first entered the Ellington orbit. Ellington, who was highly impressed with Strayhorn's abilities, but a little unsure of how exactly he could use him in his organization, turned over much of the arranging work uh, for these small group sessions to Strayhorn. Thus, Billy Strayhorn worked closely with Hodges and was directly involved in the altruist's rise to fame as a soloist. The success that Hodges and Strayhorn created together and independently with the Ellington organization led both musicians to feel somewhat cheated by Ellington at different points in their careers. Both men thought that they should deserve more credit and, and more money for their contributions to Ellington's songbook. Frequently, Hodge's bluesy riffs would be fleshed out by Ellington into full-blown tunes. Uh, Hodges was sometimes but not always create, uh, credited as co-composer and, and felt that his inspiration was essential to the works. Also, according to Mercer Ellington, uh, Ellington's son, Hodges would often uh, sell the rights to his own tunes to Duke for, for like one or two hundred dollars, only to see them then become massive hits, bringing in years of royalties for Ellington. I love finding these sorts of dualities in, in music, so if you will, indulge me in, in one more before we move on. You could, you could consider Billy Strayhorn and Johnny Hodges to be another representation of this duality between the intellectual high society and, and the natural emotional elements present in the Ellington organization. Billy Strayhorn was an intellectual. He was widely read, sophisticated, and, and highly trained musically, whereas Hodges prided himself on having worked his way up musically with, with almost no formal training and, and came from a place of natural emotional expression. In 1940, Johnny Hodges placed first in the downbeat pole for alto saxophone. He would hold the top spot in the downbeat pole for 10 years. Each night, Hodges would be featured on three to four tunes with the band uh, when most of the other soloists would only have one feature. He would typically play a feature immediately after the intermission, which was coveted as the most important slot of the night. 
He became so known for certain numbers like Warm Valley that when he left the band, they were given to Paul Gonsalves rather than have the replacement alto player play them. Hodges began to be listed on Billings, uh, you know, specifically, and and occasionally his name was even even listed above Ellington's. You know, it would say like Duke Ellington with Johnny Hodges or or Johnny Hodges and the Duke Ellington Orchestra. Ultimately, Hodges made the decision to leave the Ellington band, but it would be a slow process that involved offers from others interested in his services and a number of small group performances away from Ellington. Hodges has uh, seen his colleagues Cootie Williams, Rex Stewart, Barney Bigard, and Otto Hardwick depart him, depart before him, and, and Ellington's continued insistence of working toward more symphonic and, and serious composition was just totally at odds with, with Hodges' sensibilities. Hodges' departure from the Ellington band uh, corresponded roughly with, with the decline of the big bands in general. The enormous payrolls and changing tastes made it difficult, if not impossible, to keep so many musicians on a payroll. In 1949, Ellington was denying rumors that his band was in dire financial straits. That same year, Charlie Parker replaced Johnny Hodges atop the downbeat pole. Musical tastes were changing, and bebop was on its way in. The new styles were not oriented toward dancing, but for listening. Jazz music was becoming more intellectual. However, change is often gradual, and Hodges was still at the height of his fame. Legacy organizations, notoriously slow to adopt new trends, were very much uh, still interested in the hugely commercially viable Johnny Hodges. John Hammond approached Hodges about joining a racially integrated band at CBS led by Raymond Scott, who was the musical director for the network at the time. Hodges was offered $125 a week, which is about $1,800 a week in today's money, but he turned down the offer. Hammond was clearly offended and wrote Hodges a rather stern letter, which he also published in the magazine Orchestra World. Hammond had been a longtime critic of Ellington's attempts to move his music into more sophisticated realms and included some of his usual gripes about Ellington losing touch with his black roots and and playing exclusively for white audiences in his letter scolding Hodges. Hodges replied that his boss had, quote, done more for the advancement and dignity of the colored musician than Hammond and Scott will ever do, unquote. After this incident, Hammond, who typically accepted Hodges from his criticism of Ellington's work, lumped the two together in his assaults. Toward the end of his tenure with Ellington, Hodges was known to grumble about leaving. Ellington offered to make records with Hodges receiving top billing as the leader uh, with the Ellington Orchestra, which he did, but in the end, it, it was just simply time to go. Hodges had had a little taste of how it might be to strike out on his own during a a several weeks long stint as the leader of a small group at the Apollo Cafe in New York in 1948 when Ellington was away in Europe. Throughout Chapman's book, he sprinkles in anecdotes of uh, how icy the relationship between Hodges and Ellington could be, as well as the real warmth that existed between the two at times. Chapman acknowledges that these extreme feelings come naturally to anyone who is forced to be in such close company for uh, an extended period of time, but seems to believe that the animosity between the two musicians was more than a normal amount for two men of their stature uh, in their situation. I'm not sure I agree. Uh, I tend to think that when working in that kind of a setting where you have musicians performing it at such a high level with the kind of care and intensity it takes to be innovators like that, 
anything perceived as a, a slight or a show of disrespect can can just so easily be blown out of proportion. I also kind of think that so much of their time spent together was probably very mundane, just like doing all the things necessary to keep a successful touring and, and recording enterprise running, like organizing charge, traveling, picking up dry cleaning, etc. We only get the stories of like the blow ups and the extreme moments, you know, not the the day to day realities of band life. And with that in mind, I'm in, inclined to believe that the tension was probably a lot lower than the the picture we get from these historical accounts. I mean, like after all, you know, who would stand it for that long if things really were that intense? Another interesting gripe between Hodges and Ellington developed sometime in the mid to late forties. Hodges, who had been playing, you know, both alto and soprano saxophones in the band, approached Ellington about receiving double pay, uh, you know, which he was entitled to as a, as a member of the local 802. Uh, I, I assume everyone knows this, but um, maybe you don't. If if you're playing, you know, more than one instrument, you get uh, you get what's called doubling scale. Uh, you know, it's not twice as much money, but if you're playing in a show or an orchestra or something like if, if you're required to double, you, you do get you, you get a little bit more money usually. So he uh, he approaches Duke about this and uh, and Duke's like, uh, no, well, I, I'm not going to pay you anymore. <laughs> and, and so that was the end of Hodges playing soprano in the band. He's like, he's like, OK, if you won't give me a doubling scale, then I, I'm just not going to double anymore. And it's kind of sad, really. Uh, you know, the soprano saxophone was Hodge's first love after he spotted in it, spotted it in that store window, and uh, it was his first musical inspiration and what sent him down the path following Sidney Bechet that created that that strong New Orleans blues feel in his playing. And it's also quite sad because it means that there are about uh, like three decades of Ellington recordings that do not have Hodge's playing soprano on them. Hodges wouldn't play soprano with Ellington again until 1970, at the very end of his life, uh, when Ellington wrote a movement of his New Orleans suite titled Portrait of Sidney Bechet, which was a feature for Hodges on soprano. Uh, when he wrote this, Duke sent his son Mercer to ask Hodges if, he would, uh, if he'd be willing to play soprano for the suite's premiere in New Orleans, to which Hodges replied, well, it'll cost him. Ellington relented and and paid him what he wanted, and uh, a three-decade absence was finally filled. In early 1951, Hodges officially left Ellington by announcing his departure publicly and taking uh, drummer Sonny Greer and trombonist Lawrence Brown with him. He quickly formed his own group and was soon playing at the Newark Holiday Inn, which he billed as uh, like something of a warm-up gig before heading to the band's official first stand at the Blue Note in Chicago. Tennerman and former Ellingtonian Al Sears joined in with Hodges in his new small group, not just as a player, but also in a managerial capacity. Sears had been Ellington's personal problem solver and, and so was well suited to this role with Hodges. Sears diligently lined up a month's worth of work for the group and deserves a good deal of credit for uh, Hodges' new group's ability to take off right away. Sears was also featured on the group's most successful pop hit, Castle Rock. One can make an argument that Castle Rock, recorded in the early 50s by Hodges and his orchestra, was the first step in rock and roll's eventual eclipse of jazz and swing music. 
Castle Rock's Castle Rock is very much a steady driving R&B record, which came out around the same time as Ike Turner's Rocket 88 and Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock. Al Sears sent a copy of the record to Alan Freed, who was a major proponent of early rock and roll in Cleveland, Ohio. Shout out, hometown. Uh, in fact, Alan Freed is credited with coining the term rock and roll. If you listen to Castle Rock, you can clearly hear how the record may have filled a transitional spot between swing and rock. Al Sears didn't stay with Hodges very long, resulting in a string of tenormen coming and going through Hodges' group in the early 50s. Arthur Babe Clark, Ernie Scott, Flip Phillips, and Ben Webster were all heard with Hodges during this time, before Hodges eventually hired a young tenor player fresh out of the Navy called John Coltrane. It's kind of remarkable how influential uh, Hodges was during the 50s. His group puts out Castle Rock, helping to usher in arguably the biggest seismic shift in musical tastes of the 20th century on one hand, and he's also like an early model for John Coltrane, easily the most influential tenor player of a generation. Early in his playing career, Coltrane attempted to imitate Hodges' lyrical style and rich tone, but found that he just he just couldn't do it. Uh, this direction in his playing didn't last long as he uh, quickly moved on to become the technical and, and harmonic innovator that we now know him as. It's quite funny to me to think that, you know, so many players out there now are, are desperately trying to do the post-Coltrane thing when, when Train was just trying and failing to imitate Johnny Hodges. Coltrane only stayed with Hodges for about six months before being fired. There are a couple of recordings of Coltrane with Hodges. Um, check out a tune called Burgundy Walk. It's available on the album Johnny Hodges in Chronology 1952 to 1954. Coltrane doesn't solo, but it's kind of fun to hear him playing in the section on this like old school blues material. There's also a compilation album under Coltrane's name called First Giant Steps that has recordings of uh, Castle Rock and, and Through for the Night recorded uh, with Hodges that do have solos from Coltrane on them. Uh, ultimately, Coltrane's heroin habit, which he'd picked up just prior to joining Hodges, got the best of him. He was like nodding out on stage to the point where it was affecting the performances, and so Hodges let him go. Years later, Coltrane would show his enduring admiration for Hodges, saying in a 1961 interview that Hodges was, quote, the world's greatest saxophone player, unquote. He was also known to wish that he, uh, he could play with the confidence that Hodges brought to the stage throughout his career. Ultimately, Hodges found the life of band leader to be quite taxing and simply not in his nature. He was not known as a great showman, and those who saw him uh, live tend to describe him as seeming like disinterested or, or just shuffling to the front of the stage, playing incredibly, and then like ambling away. In performance, he rarely announced the names of tunes, introduced soloists, or, or really engaged with the audience at all. He was described by the legendary record producer George Avakian as the super placid Johnny Hodges. In a lot of articles I've read on Hodges, many of the writers express a lot of surprise that someone who produced such effortless and, and deeply felt swing, as well as such a lush tone, could present this kind of detachment in performance. I've read descriptions of him playing that uh, said it looked like he was like counting emergency exits or thinking about what he would order for dinner or, you know, counting the audience to make sure he was being paid the proper amount while he was playing. 
Personally, this this doesn't really seem that odd to me, especially if you think about how relentless the touring schedules were in Hodge's time. The idea of being a, a thoroughly polished craftsman who like hits his mark every time, but does so dispassionately, just seems like a good survival strategy to me, really. In 1955, Hodges rejoined Ellington. The stresses of managing his own group, handling the bookings, payrolls, union, taxes, and, and also like the personalities of employees, and, you know, were just too much for him. Unlike Ellington, who had multiple staff to handle these various aspects of his schedule, Hodges, with the exception of Al Sears at the beginning, took on all of these tasks himself, something which he was just not really suited to. While Hodges was at something of a high point in his career when he rejoined his former employer, the Ellington Band was at something of a low point. The downbeat polls ranked Ellington fourth in the big band category, and the band was doing odd gigs like playing background music at the Aquacade at Flushing Meadows. Also, Hodges' return brought out something of a rift that was occurring in the band between the older players who welcomed Hodges back and the younger players who were looking toward the future of jazz music and were not exactly thrilled to see a star of the old guard return and, and regain a position of prominence in the organization. This funk that the band was in went on until 1956, when a somewhat miraculous performance at the Newport Jazz Festival essentially resurrected the band's reputation. While it may have been a, a rocking solo from Paul Gonsalves that got the, the crowd going, Hodges playing on I Got It Bad and That Ain't Good and Jeep's Blues kept the crowd crying out for more. The live recording made at the festival became a huge seller for Ellington, and Columbia Records offered him a very generous recording contract at a time when big bands were, were being eschewed in favor of rock bands. In short, the Ellington band was back and Johnny Hodges was front and center. The next few years were busy with touring and recording, both with Ellington and in small group formats. 1959 and 1960 saw two of the most popular releases featuring Ellington and Hodges. Back-to-back, uh, -back, Duke Ellington and Johnny Hodges play the blues, and side-by-side, -side, Duke Ellington and jo Johnny Hodges plus others. Both albums were commercially successful and critically well-received. And this is kind of interesting to me because 1959, uh, when these albums came out, was like, you know, it was such a massive year for jazz records. 1959 saw Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, Ornette Coleman's The Shape of Jazz to Come, Dave Brubeck's Time Out, and Charles Mingus's Mingus Ah Um. It's interesting to me that, uh, you know, a couple of uh, Ellington releases that were, that were more or less like, you know, really within the Ellington tradition uh, and, and nothing, you know, nothing groundbreaking on these records. It's, it's interesting to me that they received such attention from record buyers and, and the press when all of this was going on. You know, these other really groundbreaking records were coming out. And I think that this shows that even though the group wasn't particularly cutting edge, they were just massively popular with the general public. Although he had returned to Ellington full time, Hodges kept up many recording opportunities on the side. Many of these groups featured a, a variety of Hodges bandmates from the Ellington group, and although they are fine recordings, they're a bit indistinguishable for me, if I'm honest. Many of these recordings feature a lot of the same tunes and the same personnel. And Hodges recorded with, with Jerry Mulligan uh, in a sort of Mulligan meets format, you know, that, the, that Jerry would, uh, would later use with many artists in years to come. 
Mulligan had just previously done a similar record with Ben Webster and that, you know, uh, the one with Johnny Hodges is, is just really swinging and the two saxophonists really play, play well together. I, it, it's just, it's such a cool record. It, it kind of foreshadows like the cool stuff that's going to come. It's, it's just so swinging. It's great. Uh, not all of the records that Hodges made away from Ellington were, were well received by jazz fans. In 1956, Lawrence Welk, a band leader known for his sort of easy listening, milk toast, white jazz, was particularly enamored with the Johnny Hodges solo he heard while driving. He had been a, a longtime fan of Hodges playing and, and, and after hearing this particular recording, decided to ask Hodges to make a record with him, to which Hodges readily agreed. While some musicians and jazz fans may have panned his decision to work with Welk, Con Chapman points out that Hodges playing retains all of its richness and power and that he plays rather unsentimentally over the rather saccharine string arrangements. Chapman makes a great point where he compares Hodges playing, which, you know, contains plenty of emotion in service of the melody, with players like Kenny G who use an artifice of emotion that is simply decorative and, and ultimately just fluff. Hodge's relationship with Ellington was intense, sometimes strained, uh, but overall sounds very close to me. In a way, it seems like they acted a bit like brothers, like uh, fighting frequently, but, but making up and, and frequently closing ranks to defend each other when needed. I don't think it's too much to say that they each made each other's careers and that neither of them would have had the same sort of uh, success without the other. In 1970, Hodges recorded his last album, Three Shades of Blue, Johnny Hodges with Leon Thomas and Oliver Nelson. This album is a, a little bit of a crossroads in terms of personnel with Hank Jones and Ron Carter in the rhythm section, a 24-year-old uh, Randy Brecker on trumpet, and vocalist Leon Thomas, who is known for combining yodeling and jazz singing. Uh, indeed, there is some some very odd singing on the album. Uh, it is it's kind of cool to hear Hodges playing over Oliver Nelson's arrangements. Tunes like Echoes of Harlem like very clearly sound like Oliver Nelson to me. In about 1968, Hodges began to experience heart problems, and his health began to fail. He started missing dates and and laying out during ensemble parts, only playing his solos. Unfortunately, he, he just sort of like refused to address these problems with medical care or lifestyle changes, and ultimately he succumbed to them on May 11th, 1970. Hodges lived much longer than the average lifespan for men born at the beginning of the 20th century. He outlived the average white man by 15 years and the average black man by 30. His estate was worth $86,000. Uh, which adjusted for inflation is just over a half million dollars in today's money. That's kind of a remarkable amount of money, especially when you consider that Hodges sold the rights to many of his early works to Ellington for very little. Uh, so that's pretty much you know, a walkthrough of uh, Hodges' career as a, a saxophonist and a performer, but, but what else do we really know about him? Hodges was known to have very refined culinary tastes and was known to frequent many of the finest restaurants in New York, where chefs would often prepare special meals for him. He was also known to be something of a chef himself, uh, coming a long way from his childhood of munching lettuce and tomato sandwiches. Uh, 
When air travel became the norm for the band, Hodges was known to detest airline food. Unlike many of his fellow Ellingtonians, Hodges was, was not a particularly heavy drinker. He drank both Canadian whiskey and gin, but easily gave them up for Sauternes on recommendation from his doctor that he stop drinking liquor. He was not a drug user either, though drugs were present in the band. Uh, you know, there's that famous video of Paul Gonsalves like nodding out while the band's just like <laughs> ripping behind him. You know, Johnny Hodges was sitting just a few feet away from him every night. Hodges had a pet monkey. Uh, Chapman teases us with that info in his book, but doesn't offer anything else about like how he got the monkey or what he did with it when he was touring or like, you know, why he had a pet monkey. <laughs> there, there just there really doesn't seem to be any info about it on the Internet, uh, which is just a damn shame. Uh, I want to know more about the monkey. I did do a little bit of digging to see just how common it was to own pet monkeys in the 60s. And apparently it was kind of a common thing. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, uh, there was a type of monkey that was sold primarily through ads in comic books. And over 170,000 of them were imported uh, to the U.S. for sale. Uh, Hodges was a Yankees fan and a Freemason. When the Ellington band traveled, Hodges took the front seat, uh, took the first seat at the front of the bus, which he believed to be the best seat, and uh, he also believed that he was entitled to it as the band's preeminent soloist. After years of uh, pretty relentless touring, Hodges and the other players who had been with Ellington for decades were, were known to be excellent travelers. Hodges was typically the one to scout out a new area upon arrival and, and find like, you know, the dry cleaners and, and the other essential services. A cigarette smoker early in life, Hodges switched to cigars later on and eventually gave up the habit when instructed to do so by his doctor. He was also known to be a gambler and he particularly enjoyed playing a version of gin rummy called Tonk. Hodges was something of a contrarian, being a, a big believer in discipline in the band, but that the rules, you know, didn't necessarily apply to him uh, because of his talent, naturally. Mercer Ellington explained that many of the guys in the band believed that anyone rushing to get to their seat early ahead of a performance felt that they were in danger of losing their job. As a result, Hodges and clarinetist Jimmy Hamilton would compete to see who could be the last to sit down before the gig started. I must say, I've been in bands where we've done this kind of nonsense, and it's super silly and super fun. And I can also say it's highly annoying when you're a band leader to put up with that kind of bullshit. <laughs> Though Hodges wasn't in charge of the Ellington band, his long tenure gave him a lot of skills that probably kept the band on the rails. He was known to be able to diffuse tension with a well-timed joke, despite his generally dour demeanor. Uh, he would conduct with his hand behind his chair if he felt the, the other musicians weren't up to scratch, and, and he was known to confront younger players if they showed up drunk on the bandstand. His demeanor was demure, uh, but to me, he doesn't sound shy. Uh, he just sounds really reserved. No doubt this was Hodge's natural outlook, but holding oneself back like that also seems like a good practice to stay sane when you're traveling relentlessly and, and people are probably in your face a lot telling you how much they love you and love your playing and all that. And, and to just take a step back, be very polite, but not particularly engaged makes a lot of sense to me. Chapman suggests uh, this is a version of, uh, you know, 
like the cool aesthetic uh, a few decades before cool was a thing. And I think that's a really great way to put it. He's like, yeah, I'll give you 100% through my playing, but no gimmicks and off stage, you don't really need to be that involved with me. And that's pretty much Johnny Hodges. Um, I thought it might be interesting uh, with with some of these players to start like maybe mentioning like what instruments and stuff they play. I'm I'm not really like a massive gear guy. Um, there's a photo uh, from 1945 of Hodges with his saxophone that was used as a publicity photo for Busher saxophones. Uh, he was known to play on a Busher 400 alto or a Con 6M alto. And he also played a Busher straight soprano. And he played a, a white Brillhart number no. five. I think that's probably the, uh, the Tonalin one. Those, uh, those Busher alto saxophones are, are kind of, they're kind of cool. The, the bell has like a bigger and earlier flare and like kind of comes out at more of an angle than, uh, than like a lot of standard saxophones. And, and I sort of wonder if that had something to do, you know, I don't want to give the saxophone credit for his, his sound, but I wonder if, um, if the instrument like uh, influenced the way that he heard his own sound and, and maybe caused him to project and, and create that size of a sound in a, in a way that a different uh, instrument might not have. I don't know. Um, so like I've done with some of the other uh, episodes, I've, I've, I want to give a couple of recommendations um, of things to check out. Uh, I, I love the album that he did with with Jerry Mulligan. I think it's just called Jerry Mulligan and Johnny Hodges. It's it's just so cool. I would definitely recommend that one. Uh, there's an Ella Fitzgerald album called Ella at Duke's Place. And I, I think this one is just like it, one of her best albums, one of Duke's best albums. And and Hodges playing on it is, is superb. Ella at Duke's Place. Definitely check that one out. And uh, another one... This one maybe is a little bit controversial for Hodges because he wasn't into this sort of uh, high composition style of Ellington. But there's a great album uh, of the, some of the suites that Ellington wrote just called Duke Ellington and his orchestra, the Ellington Suites. I, I think it's a great album. I, it's just really interesting writing. There's lots of like woodwind doubling. It's, it's kind of orchestral in nature. And uh, yeah, I'd really recommend that one. So uh, that's it for uh, Johnny Hodges. I, I hope that uh, that shines some new light on him. And I, uh, I hope that you'll maybe go out and uh, listen to some of those records and, and uh, appreciate his playing and, and his role in the development of the saxophone, you know, moving from like early New Orleans jazz into more modern idioms and, and, and what he did with the Ellington band uh, a little bit more. Um, Thanks very much for listening. Uh, please, you know, like and subscribe and, and do all those things. And uh, as always, uh, I'll put up uh, sources and stuff on my website. That's andrewdmeyer.com. Thanks very much.